0: Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Psalm 25. Psalm 25 is where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can get one from the pew back in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at all, you can take that one. Just have it. It's our gift to you. I ran that by precisely no people before I said that, so... If you get caught going out the door, just tell them, I gave you permission. Psalm 25 is where we're going to be. And while you open your Bibles there, I want to pray for us. I want to pray for two things. One, for our reading of this Word and just our understanding of it as we think through the Psalms. Psalms can sometimes be very difficult to process, and this is our summer where we typically take 10 Psalms during the summer, and before we go back to Matthew is where we've been the last few years. And so I want to pray for us as we read the, the Psalm, that we understand it, that we're going to apply this to our own lives so that we would be able to apply it. And understand how it fits into our context. But then I also want to pray for the hearts of those of us in this room. There are struggles plenty in here from pulpit to pew and everywhere in between. We all have issues that we are dealing with on a daily basis. Some of them I know and some of them I do not know. And so my prayer is not only that we would understand this text, but Perhaps you might find yourself in a position where you're struggling, or you're in the midst of deep trial. My prayer is that this text would be exactly what you need. So let's go to the Lord in prayer with that in mind. Heavenly Father, we come before you because it is from you that we require understanding. It's from you that we require wisdom. In order to even understand this text and apply it to our lives, we need help from you. And so we pray that you would give it. You know the hearts and minds of each and every person in this room. And so my prayer is that you would reach each and every person. There is no possible way I could give the number of scenarios and applications that are fitting for each and every heart. I leave that to you. You know them far better than I do. You know me far better than I do. And so I pray that the application that you give to them would be fitting for where they are. Father, I pray also for those of us in this room, maybe all of us in this room, who are in the midst of incredible trial and suffering. Perhaps we've shared that with people. Perhaps we've kept it quiet. I pray that in this passage, in this psalm, In David's cry in this psalm, your people would find exactly what they need for their trial. We leave the application to you. Pray that you would do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Psalm 25 is where we're going to be. I'm going to go ahead and read that. So if you're there, follow along with me. Psalm 25 of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him he will instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for He will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Although it doesn't seem likely, and you wouldn't know it just by reading the English text, but Psalm 25 is the first instance in the Psalms that we have an acrostic poem, meaning that each verse is a new letter Of the Hebrew alphabet. The psalmist is going to do this several times throughout the book of Psalms. Most notably, you'll probably remember if you're familiar with the book of Psalms, is Psalm 119, which is forever long, the longest psalm in the book of Psalms, the longest chapter in the Bible. It goes by Hebrew crossing. And if you turn to Psalm 119, you don't have to do that right now, but if you notate it, you can go there later you'll see that even in your English Bibles, it's noted above each little paragraph the Hebrew letter that this corresponds to. So each paragraph in Psalm 119 starts with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Well, here we have a very similar thing, and each verse starts with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, David doesn't tell us why he's written this psalm in an acrostic, why he's chosen to do that. And it does not it's not just necessarily stated for us, so we don't have some divine authority to be able to say why. But it seems pretty obvious the reason why a poet would do that. At least one reason why a poet might do that, and that is for memorization. Now, it bears repeating, don't forget this, that the, salt, the Psalter, the book of Psalms, is a hymn book. It's meant to be sung as a congregation. The congregation gathers around, these are somewhat of a hymn book for the entire congregation of God's people to sing together. And so here's what we find in the book of Psalms, and when David is writing an acrostic, is that it stands to reason he wants it to be memorized. He wants it to be easy to be memorized. So if each line begins with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet, it might be easy for you to recall. Similar to how our poets today would rhyme at the end of every other line, or you'd pick up the rhyme scheme it's fairly quickly that you can gather what the next line is, or that you can remember the line as you sing it, and you can repeat it. Now, normally, each psalm is going to deal with a particular subject, right? We've seen that over the past few weeks, even. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is a psalm of lament. And so the entire subject, for the most part, in Psalm 22, is lamentation. David is crying out, and we are called to lament out of Psalm 22. Or you get to the next psalm in Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There's a common metaphor that carries throughout that, almost that entire psalm, which has a lot of uh, shepherding metaphors to it to unpack. And then sometimes in the psalms, you get a little heading up at the very top that tells you the situation David was going through when he wrote this psalm. His affair with Bathsheba. When he was exiled by his son Absalom. And various other trials that he might have been going through. Sometimes they're notated for you. They give you a little bit of a background as to what occasion brings up this psalm. But here, this psalm is a little bit more difficult, especially to preach and to teach. Because we don't have any background like that. And... David shifts topics a little bit throughout. The topics that he brings up seem to be a little bit scattered, and with no heading for a background, it's hard to make sense of it. But if you stare at this psalm long enough, as I have spent some time doing this week, you start to see a pattern emerge in this psalm. Look, for instance, at the first seven verses and tell me to whom is David talking in the first seven verses. I mean, he's talking to the Lord. It doesn't take you very long before you see that in the first verse. He says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. He's, he's talking to the Lord. This is a prayer. It starts off just as a simple prayer that David is voicing to the Lord. But then, look down at verse 8. And look all the way to verse 15. Look at how it changes. Who's he talking to now? Well, he's talking about the Lord in third person. He says, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs the sinner in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. So he goes from talking to the Lord in the first seven verses, and then he shifts to talking to Presumably a congregation. This is almost like a second verse, where the congregation goes from a prayer to the Lord in the song to an encouragement, maybe even an exhortation to each other. But then look at verse 16. He goes back to an appeal to the Lord. Becomes the third verse, a cry to the Lord again, a prayer. So once you see this pattern then, Right in the middle of the psalm, right in the middle of the congregation exhorting one another, is verse 11, which is not at all like an exhortation to each other, but turns once again to a cry to the Lord. It's in the middle of the psalm. It's the middle verse. It's right in the middle of an exhortation to the congregation. It doesn't fit the pattern. It sticks out like a sore thumb. And what is it? But he says, "For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great." It's right there, staring at us in the middle of the psalm, sticking out like a sore thumb. That this psalm, really at its heart, is a prayer for pardon for sin. What is what is the sin? Who knows? But once you see that, then you start to see David asking for pardon in each of the sections. He's crying out for pardon. Look at verse 7. Remember not the sins of my youth. Verse 18. Forgive all my sins. In each stanza, there is a plea to the Lord for forgiveness of his sins. So seeking forgiveness from the Lord is clearly the bedrock of, of this psalm, but it's not merely a psalm of repentance either. So when you, so then you and I might be inclined to ask, what is it that David is repenting of? Is this his, his, about his affair with Bathsheba? Whew. That was a bad one. He needed to ask for repentance for that, right? Wow. Maybe this is about one of those military campaigns that he's on. He talks about enemies, after all. Maybe it's about the military that he's surrounded by. Maybe it was when David was exiled by his son Absalom. Absalom comes in, his own son, toward the end of his reign and pushes him out until he's outside of the promised land like he was with Saul. All of that as a result of of David's sin. And I think all of those would be really bad questions. Starting off asking, what situation is David in that would require him write a psalm like this? And the reason I think that's a bad question is because one... The psalm actually gives us no background, intentionally gives us no background. But more importantly, when you read the last verse, it's obvious what David is actually headed towards, why he wrote this to begin with, and what he wants you to see. Look at verse 22 with me. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. He turns this from a reflection on his own sin and his own struggle into a common reflection across the entire nation of Israel. David is clearly writing about some daily personal struggles that he has. What are those struggles? Are they the struggles that I've just mentioned? Perhaps they're just struggles that he has in his room at night. Temptations to sin and struggles with his own heart. Who knows, but what's clear, by the time he gets to the end, he reveals for you and for me that he realizes his struggles are common amongst us all now he's the king and his struggles may be more under the microscope than most they're clearly written in scripture for all progeny to read we're reading them now so he's clearly under the microscope more but no his his sins are common amongst the entire congregation that would be reading and singing this psalm. The acrostic nature of this poem, the lack of background information, is because this psalm is common to us all. So you must understand that your entire life is one giant struggle for holiness. In prosperity... There is a struggle, much like the children of Israel, as they come into the promised land, the the temptation is that you would forget the Lord in your prosperity. And perhaps that is where many of us are. When's the last time we went to the Lord and prayed and fasted? Perhaps it's because we have our daily bread. When is the last time we prayed for daily bread? We've got pantries full of bread. We shouldn't pray for daily bread. Really? Weekly, monthly, maybe. Yearly, bread. And by bread, I mean cash. That was a joke. Judging by the fact that this is brought to light by the Psalms, what we realize is that our struggles always have been struggles. The struggles that you're dealing with, the trials and temptations that you're going through are not unique to you. They're not only common across this room, they're common across history. All of God's people have dealt with these. These aren't first world problems, they're not 21st century problems, they're problems of the soul, and they've been around since the fall of man. So it brings to light this question that we want to think about this morning. What is the posture? That is, the overall attitude. My approach... What is the posture of my life? When I encounter trials of various kinds, what is my posture? What does it look like? What does my response look like? Does it look like a human being who is going through struggles? Or does it look like a Godward Christian going through trials and tribulations? What does my life actually look like when I encounter trials of various kinds? Usually you can answer this question by looking at the times in your life when you've been in the greatest stress, whether it's struggles with sin or or trials of suffering. What sort of attitude do you assume during that season? What's common to you? What would your husband, maybe your wife, would say about it? When struggling with sin, do you cry out to the heavens? Lord, why have you done this to me? Why won't you give me relief? Why won't you allow me victory over these sins like it seems all of the rest of my friends have? When struggling with trials, it is your posture, that of asking God, Why have you brought me to this place? Why do you bring me here and then remain silent as if you're not answering my prayers? Suppose one day your son or your daughter comes to you and tells you that they intend to live a lifestyle completely different than the one you raised them to have. They sit you down. They say, Mom or Dad, I'm done with it. I'm rejecting the cross of Christ. I'm leaving and I'm not coming back. And there's nothing you can say or do to change my mind. Say one day your spouse comes in after many years of marriage and sits you down and tells you that they've committed adultery. They've been unfaithful. What does your posture look like in that moment when the trial hits you like a ton of bricks? What is your natural response that comes out? What does it look like in those moments to respond in a godly way? David is here in the midst of trial. That's obvious. A trial he sees pretty commonly amongst all of his fellow kinsmen. And here he is crying out to God for resolution. For solution to the problem. But in this psalm, he is going to demonstrate what kind of posture is befitting of God's people. The kind of posture that we should assume in the midst of trials. And the first thing that we see, we're not going to look at this necessarily verse by verse exactly. But we're going to look at the various things that he says throughout because he repeats himself a lot. The first thing that we see is that it's a posture of waiting. Waiting. Look at verse 3. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Look at verse 5. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Look at verse 21. May integrity and uprightness preserve me. For I wait... For you, it's a posture of waiting. He mentions this several times throughout this psalm. The first posture of the Godward life in the midst of trial is one David here describes as waiting. He he tells the Lord that he will wait for the Lord. He says, "All the day long." But what does it mean actually to wait for the Lord? Well, the first thing that David connects it to is trust. To wait is to trust. In the Lord, when you look closely at verses 2 and 3, you can see this, I think. First look at what he says in verse 2. Oh my God, in you I trust. If you have just a pencil, or maybe you mark in your Bible, if you don't, that's fine. But if you do, just one underline under the word trust. Let me not be put to shame. Try maybe two underlines under be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Then look at what he says in verse 3. Indeed, none who... Underline there the word, wait, for you shall be, here's another, same phrase, double underline, be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. So, first, to wait for the Lord is to exercise an immense amount of patience. That's what he's saying there. He's defining what he means by wait in verse 3, in verse 2 that comes before it. It is very simply to trust It's to exercise an immense amount of patience in the midst of your trial. This is the very foundation of what it means to trust in the Lord. Because what you're saying when you exercise patience in the midst of trial is that God understands your trial far better than even you do. This is the hard thing to understand, especially when you're going through it is that in the midst of your trial, he knows every facet of it far better than you do. You can only look at the immediate circumstances. He sees how it's going to end up, what's going to be produced on the other side of it. He sees all the resolutions and every bump in the road in the meantime. So he knows every bit of it way more than you do. Now it appears that for David, there are enemies involved. There's always enemies involved in Psalms. There's always these nebulous enemies. Sometimes they're not even defined in the Scriptures. But these enemies, whomever they are, he says, are wantonly treacherous, which is a, a phrase we use all the time. <laughs> intentionally deceptive. How about that? Would that, that work better? Intentionally deceptive. They're intentionally deceptive, meaning that there's, there's, there's no moral framework under which they're operating, except to look after number one, to look out for numero uno, at all costs, in fact. They'll do it. Now, if you've been in the workforce for any period of time, you know people who will do just about anything to get on top and to stay there. They'll step on anyone up to the top. Their intention on getting to know you is so that they have weapons to use against you should you stand in their way of getting to the top. Maybe you've been that person from time to time. But they will backstab, betray, slander, befriend, or whatever they have to do to advance their career and eliminate their competition. Now, David doesn't define the enemies. He doesn't say their armies. He doesn't say they're Philistines. He doesn't say any of those things. So this could be a foreign army, or it could be a domestic arm, uh, uh, enemy. It could be a political adversary who are simply trying to destroy his reputation, that they might assume his throne, and it could be anything in between. Maybe a mix of all of them. But more than that, because all those who would seek to live a Godward life would be joining in this psalm and singing with David here, Your enemies, by implication, qualify too. The enemies that you encounter on a daily basis, that are also enemies of the cross of Christ, they qualify here. The Holy Spirit, through David, is expecting you to be able to read this and sympathize. David is painting the two responses already in the midst of trial that some give. One is the wantonly treacherous, the intentionally deceptive person. And we all know what happens to that person in the short term. They succeed. Isn't that the most frustrating part about it? Is that the wantonly treacherous, the intentionally deceptive, it actually works. I'm not advocating it, I'm just saying in the short term, it works. Their career progresses. They step on everybody in the meantime, and it seems like nobody notices this person but you. They win in the short term. But what does David say about them but that ultimately they will be ashamed? He doesn't put that necessarily in this life. They may progress to CEO, and they may be the most advanced person you've ever seen, and they may go all the way to the grave like that. But David is confident that ultimately they will be ashamed. That response to trial, to adversity, to tribulation that they give is not only deceptive, but what they're doing is they're relying on their own might to conjure up a way of escape. And David is saying that is antithetical to the Godward life. We're not even saying in a New Testament context, that is antithetical to the Christian to do that. Rather, like the other person, the proper response is to simply trust that the Lord is going to deal with it. Can you imagine that for just a second? Can you imagine your response as a Christian to be encountered with a trial like this And to simply do nothing. To just wait. To just sit. And just pray. Can you imagine the response to your trial? The response to your adversary? It's nothing. To just wait on the Lord to work it out. And in the meantime, to just pray. Can you imagine what kind of response that is? Can you imagine any more of a faith-filled response to trials than to simply pray? Perhaps you're even thinking to yourself, I ain't doing that. No way. This has to be fixed, and it has to be fixed now. But you know what's easy for me to do? It is really easy for me, I've noticed, to just rush into a solution that I have contrived out of my own head, and my own logic, and my own wisdom, and it comes solely from my own thinking, without even, even, even just giving a moment to pray about it, it's easy for me to just jump to a conclusion and follow it to its logical end, and it solves a problem that I'm really worried about. But what's difficult for me is to just wait. is to just wait for the Lord to fix it for the Lord to address it, to just pray and to trust the Lord. And then from that comes a very clear direction that I should walk, that there is no question. I know that this is the right way. Now, why is it that at that point, there's a point after the waiting process where you just, you just kind of know what the right, solution is? Why is that? Well, because if you notice in David's prayer, his, his address to God here, his patience, he's actually asking for something. Look at verse 4. He says, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Waiting on the Lord, David says, is, is not just sitting back and twiddling your thumbs. And just thinking that maybe he will solve this problem and I have to take no initiative into my own hands at all. No, no, no. That's not what David is asking for. He's saying in the meantime, while I'm waiting, help me to know more of who you are. Help me to understand your ways of thinking rather than just my own. It's actively seeking to grow deeper in the knowledge of the Lord. That's what he's asking for. Why would this be any kind of solution to David's trials? Well, because what David finds as the solution to his trials is not scheming, It's not positioning himself to try to get an advantage. It's not crafting a master plan as to how to get even or to get the upper hand on his enemies, but it's to know and understand the ways of the Lord. He sees that as a solution to his problems. Now, that's counterintuitive, it would seem. But if you notice in verses 8 to 10 and 12 to 15, in fact, if you just look at the whole section of 8 to 15, virtually the entire section is bent towards the sinner being instructed in the way of the Lord. That's verse 8. Or well, what about him, the Lord, leading the humble and teaching the humble? That's verse 9. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love. He's, the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. That's verse 10. He will instruct him. That's verse 12. And he keeps on going like this for the remainder of the psalm. That it's in the paths of the Lord that there is counsel and wisdom to be had for those that are patiently waiting for a solution to the trials. The point that David is demonstrating is that when the godly take counsel in the Word of God, their opinions and their thoughts about their trials become the very thoughts of God. They become his opinions on the matter, not their own. They're not so short-sighted now as to see the solution to this problem being merely by their own doing, but now they can take a step back and they can say, in the meantime, while I'm waiting on you to fix this, teach me how you would respond to these trials if you were me. Teach me the things that you value more than anything else. Teach me how I should respond to this trial. The reason that it becomes evident to you as you wait, as you trust the Lord, as you seek counsel in his word, as you pray, the reason why it becomes crystal clear to you is because he's so bold to actually answer your prayer. To give you direction and to help conform you into his image. And when he does, your thoughts on the trial become his thoughts on the trial. Your thoughts on the problem become his thoughts. It's not now you merely lashing out in anger, even though you feel like that person might deserve it. But it's you waiting back and understanding that it's the Lord who will solve this. A godly posture in the midst of trial is one of waiting. But it's also a posture of repentance. Now notice this in the psalm. It's a posture of repentance. As I've said before, verse 11 is sticking out in the center of this psalm. David's concerns here are not just for the enemy without, but also the enemy within. Look at verse 6. He begs for mercy there. Look at verse 7. He asks for forgiveness. He instructs the congregation in verse 8 that the Lord instructs the sinner. The second half of the psalm is mostly a repetition of those same ideas. But in verse 18, he turns again to the Lord to ask for forgiveness for his sins. It's easy for us, I think, in the midst of trial to be so weighed down by the external enemies. All of these people who have presented to me these problems who seem immovable out of my way. It's so easy to focus on these external enemies that we completely forsake the part our own sinful hearts play in the matter. Virtually any husband-wife spat comes down to essentially this. A failure to recognize our own sinful hearts in the matter. The best advice I could possibly give to any married couple is on encountering husband and wife conflict. Draw a circle around yourself and deal with everyone inside the circle. It's the best way to deal with it. Look, I've got a part to play in all this. Rather than point the finger, deal with everyone inside the circle. Now, don't go home and say, remember what he said, draw a circle around yourself and deal with everyone inside the circle. That's you drawing a circle around somebody else and dealing with everyone inside the circle. But in the scenarios I I posed earlier with a child, maybe a spouse coming to you and just delivering you this terrible news, there is temptation there is maybe even a sense of urgency to lash out and to speak in anger or to speak foolishly. And you know what? There's sometimes maybe even you feel like some justification in your sternness with them. But is, just be honest with yourself. Is there a part of you that is doing that because the news that they've just given to you is going to embarrass you in front of others? What is it that others will say about my child when when they find out that you've given me this news and that you're like this? That's not how I raised you. What is it that they will think of me when they see that? Am I really going to live my life as, as a spouse who has been cheated on? Is that really how I want to live? Is that how I want to be known by people? Just be honest. Is there a part of it, even a small part in your heart, that is embarrassed by this news? That shies away from people who might know? Because they know. And they look at me different. And they think different of me. Perhaps it's true that even in the midst of an awful trial, of something that's horrendous, as both of those scenarios are completely, I agree, how horrendous they are. But even in the midst of that trial, do you think that it's possible that even in the midst of that, God has a purpose for you in this trial? Do you think it's possible that even in the midst of this, this awful scenario, that He is still using this trial to conform you into the image of His Son? Do you think that that's possible? That even in the midst of something as awful as that, he's still working? Is there a point in this trial where you become more concerned for his name than your own? Look at David's petition in verse 11. Look at what he says in verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord... Pardon my guilt, for it is great. For the Lord's name's sake. David's the king. What do you mean for the Lord's name's sake? He's saying, Lord, you are one who is steadfast in your love and who pardons sins. And when I sin, your name is on the line. I am called after your name, and so when I sin, your name is on the line. Pardon my guilt. Lest people think about you, that you're not one who forgives. Sometimes we face trials that are external. Our children, our spouse, or maybe a host of other things that come about. But for others, trials are very much internal. They're sin issues that go on from day to day. Particular sins that we revisit over and over again as if they have us in a snare. Temptations that seem to overcome us perhaps at opportune moments or opportune for them, inopportune for us. They just overcome us and we seem susceptible to them as if we have no way of resisting and they devour us time and time again. There's a term that's being used in our culture now uh, and if you're paying attention, you'll, you'll hear it regularly used. The term is called deconstruction. Deconstruction is very simply the process that someone goes through when they change from one worldview to another, opting out of one worldview, deconstructing it, and building a whole nother worldview. And most commonly, you'll hear it referred to at when someone leaves Christianity and opts for atheism or maybe agnosticism. And so I have talked with several people who have been in this situation directly, and I've heard of or had friends of friends um, that are many more that are in the process of deconstructing. And believe it or not, one of the most common catalysts for this deconstruction in an individual's worldview is an ongoing battle with sin. It's constant and ever-abiding sin that's in their life, that they've experienced no victories from. Most commonly, when I see this happen in men leaving the faith, pornography plays a huge role. An outright addiction to pornography. Most of the time it's secret, no one knows it but it is an addiction nonetheless, and they've struggled with it for so long that they have no victory, and they've experienced no victory. And so, as you can imagine, at some point in the journey, having no victory, and time and time again you feel enslaved to this sin, something has to go. Either it's the addiction or it's the guilt. Something has to go. And believe it or not, the guilt is far easier to get rid of than the addiction. So the thinking goes, I've tried Jesus, and the addiction hasn't gone anywhere. In spite of the promises that He's made to me, that He will refine me and that He will gradually conform me into His image, I seem to not be able to shake this particular issue. I'm addicted to it. And so, the alternative seems really appealing. If I get rid of Jesus... Maybe then the guilt will go away. Now this is strange because you'd think that the reason for the deconstruction would be logic and reason. Believe it or not, most people do not leave the Christian faith because they don't know what to do with cavemen and dinosaurs. Truthfully, most people leave because ever-present and abiding sin that is dwelling in their hearts. And you discover that with just a few questions. What's frequently very difficult for every single one of us when we encounter the sin in our own hearts is to accept the forgiveness offered to us only in Jesus Christ. That's what becomes really difficult for the person that is struggling in deep and abiding sin. It's to actually accept the forgiveness and trust in the forgiveness that God has given to us only in Christ. It's one thing to know it. It's actually very easy to know it. Kids, adults alike, can know it. It's another thing to trust it. To actually believe that God actually forgives you Who forgives like that? No one. Does your spouse forgive like that? No. Maybe they should, but they have limits. Your children forgive like that. No. They too have limits. Does your family forgive like that? No. They have limits too. You might always be their family, but you won't be at the family reunion. Which may be an answer to prayer, I don't know. (laughs) Do your friends forgive like that? No. They'll leave eventually. What person do you know that can promise to you if you confess your sins to me, I am faithful and just and I will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness? What friend do you have that can make that promise to you and stand by it every step of the way? I'll tell you what. Why don't you write that into your wedding vows? Or perhaps if you redo your vows one day, why don't you write that into your wedding vows? In sickness and in health, for better or worse, no matter how many times you confess your sins against me, I will always forgive you. I might actually put that in the vows that I officiate from here on out. Pastor, we found somebody else to officiate our wedding <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to be held to that? God does. God wants to be held to that. He wrote it in His Word to be held to that. But this is the part of the waiting on the Lord thing. This is an aspect of waiting on the Lord. Remember I said that David is trusting in the Lord and he's he's learning of his steadfast love and his faithfulness while he's waiting on the Lord. This is what that means. He's asking for forgiveness and he's learning that the Lord is steadfast in his love and his faithfulness and his forgiveness. And so when you learn of his ways, you see that he guaranteed his love for you in the death of Jesus Christ. That he's given it to you. He's already secured it for you. This psalm is ultimately about Jesus. Why? Because it's an answer to David's prayer. Remember what he asks for in verse 22? He's crying for redemption for all of Israel. He's crying throughout the psalm for forgiveness for his sin and pardon for his guilt. Do you not see that Jesus Christ alone fulfills this psalm? He is an answer to David's prayer thousand years prior. But like God is prone to do, He's answering David's prayer in a way that even David couldn't imagine. Or He's not just redeeming Israel and His kinfolk. He's redeeming His people from the corners of the earth. Jew and Gentile alike, so that in Christ alone he could break down a wall of division between Jew and Gentile so that there is now no more distinction and in Christ create one new man. Thereby making peace. Not only with mankind, but making peace with himself. Perhaps you're having a difficult time believing that the Lord will forgive you for your sin. No, it's too much, it's too frequent. I think I've actually outrun His grace. This is what you might not understand. In Christ, your sin has already been nailed to the cross. It happened 2,000 years ago, it's done. Your sin's already been nailed there. It's already been forgiven. Well, then why does 1 John tell me I confess my sins, he's faithful and just forgive me of my sins. That sounds like it's an ongoing thing. Because he goes on to say, if you say that you have no sin, you call God a liar. Well, he's already pinned your sin to the cross. If you're going to say now that that's not sin, then you're calling him a liar. What you're doing in confession, what you're doing in repentance, is you're agreeing that sin you pinned to Calvary is my sin. And I'm guilty of it. You've got me dead to rights. That's what you don't understand in the midst of your struggle is that your sin's already been penned to the cross. It's already been forgiven. You have nothing to lose by coming clean and admitting to it before the Lord. When you confess your sins, you're agreeing with Him that it's been nailed to the cross and what He's nailed there is true. Do you hear, David, what he says here? Pardon my guilt, for it is great. Forgive all my sins. Does he name them? Does he name his sins here? He doesn't name his sins. Why? Well, one, because there are too many tonight. But second, he doesn't know them all. You need to come to terms with the fact that there are many sins in your life that you're not even aware of, that God has forgiven you in Christ simply because he is that gracious and merciful. What we often fail to realize is that God is more holy than we could ever possibly imagine. But perhaps what's also true is that we also fail to realize He is also far more loving than we could possibly ever imagine. That He's far more merciful, far more gracious to you than you could ever ask or imagine. The godly response the trial is a posture of waiting. It's a posture of repentance. And finally and briefly, it's a posture of faith. Uh, sorry, endurance. It's a posture of endurance. What is David's ultimate desire here? It's to endure in faith. That he will, in the end, be saved. That in the end, all of Israel will be saved. That in the end, his enemies will not have the last laugh. And the, the foes that currently are violent to him and that hate him will be, in the end, proven wrong. What does he pray in verse 20? O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. He's accepting that redemption, salvation, that it will ultimately happen in the Lord's timing and and in the Lord's wisdom. And so therefore, what is he resigned to do? He's resigned to wait. But then the temptation is for his soul to give in to despair. His prayer is instead there in verse 15, to keep my eyes ever toward the Lord, trusting that He will pluck my feet out of the net. How often do you give thought to endurance? The longer I'm in ministry and the older I get, the more I see people around me tragically fall in the midst of trials of various kinds. I've recently seen a dear friend and brother in the Lord leave his wife and his kids. We've seen pastors fall away even some committing suicide. I've seen fellow believers with whom I've had long conversations about our mutual faith, what I thought was our mutual faith, leave Christ altogether. And the more time that goes by, and the more and more I see that, the more I realize, I don't care if I'm ever Seen as successful. Not in your eyes or my eyes, the eyes of my family or anyone else. I don't care if I ever become known or have success or have wealth. I just want to make it. I just want to make it to the end. I can assure you There's sins aplenty in my life. If you knew how bad I was, you probably wouldn't listen. If I knew how bad you were, I probably wouldn't let you in. (laughs) Let's be honest, it goes both ways. There are responses that I give in various circumstances that are not out of patiently waiting on the Lord, that are not out of seeking His instruction in my life. There's not a week that goes by that the text of the sermon doesn't hit me first before it ever gets to you. I'm convinced that the pastor is the worst one in the midst of the congregation because he gets preached to seven days a week. You get it just one day. As much as I realize the desire in me is to please people, that part of me has to die the part of me that would cling to any temporary circumstance, like the approval of a body of people or whatever else, that anything that I would tempt to cling to as my refuge has to die. David says in verse 20, For I take refuge in you. Instead of chasing the things that please the flesh, but bring rot to the soul. Can we say with David there in verse 21, May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Are you in a place this morning where you know very well the trials that are before you? Maybe it's kids. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's a particular sin. Maybe it's a combination of many things along the way. In a moment, we're going to sing a song called, I Will Wait For You. And it's based on Psalm 130, where David says, I will wait for you again. But He says it more in this psalm than he does even in Psalm 130. I will wait for you. Can you say to the Lord in the midst of all those trials that you're going through, can you take a step back and can you say with the psalmist here, In Psalm 25, with the songwriter in I will wait for you. I will wait for you. I will wait for you. On your word, I will rely. I will wait for you. Surely wait for you. Till my soul is satisfied. Can you sing that? With the psalmist, with the songwriter, here. Lord, whatever's going on in my life, whatever trial it may be, I'm going to take a step back and just wait. In the meantime, I want to learn. Teach me. So that the way I respond is godly and is Christ-like and reflects your wisdom. Can you sing that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I don't know all the trials that are in this room. You know them. I don't know how that text falls on the heart of each individual you do. We entrust this word to your spirit, knowing that you have empowered your word to go forth, that it accomplishes that for which you have sent it, that it does all that you have intended for it to accomplish, and that in the end you will have your way inside the heart of each and every individual. Father, would you do this in the life of the people in this congregation, in the life of this church? Would you apply it to their situation? Give them clear direction on which way to walk that is in accordance with your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.